There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 8th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the Dunboyne native, County Meath TD, and former Taoiseach John Bruton passed away this week. Aged 76. Our yesterday grev on a Russell Augustilish, Slon Augustbanacht, Shankara. Yesterday, Dahl Aaron sat, and most unusually, there was just one item on the agenda with politicians from across the political divide coming together to pay tribute to the late John Bruton. Can I say, just before I call the Taoiseach, that it's profoundly sad that the occasion has arisen whereby we must meet here today to express our sympathies to Fanola Broughton, her children, Matthew, Juliana, Emily and Mary Elizabeth, to our colleague and friend, uh, Deputy Richard Bruton, and to his sister Mary, on the passing of our former esteemed Taoiseach and colleague, John Bruton. John Bruton gave this country decades, indeed a lifetime, of sterling service. He was, in every respect, a modern Irish patriot. His commitment to the European Union was demonstrated and he strode the international stage with purpose and confidence. He was a conviction politician, devoted to his family, tireless in the service of the Irish people and yet always warm, friendly, approachable and totally unassuming. A man of high intellect, he was also someone of absolute integrity. And we are, colleagues, all the poorer today for his passing. Ciancorla, Sean O'Farrell. But it was today's leader of Fine Gael and sitting Taoiseach Leo Vradker who led the tributes yesterday. As Taoiseach and as leader of Fine Gael, I extend my deepest sympathy to the family and friends and colleagues of John Bruton. I pay tribute to a modern patriot who led a life of extraordinary public service. He made lasting contributions to our country and leaves a remarkable legacy. John Bruton was somebody who inspired me to enter politics and to join Fine Gael. I was struck by his incredible belief in young people and his unshakable faith that they could make a difference. He never forgot what it was like to enter this house as a young man, only 22 years old at the time, full of hope and idealism. 
He was still hopeful and idealistic 35 years later when he left Irish political life so he could make a vital contribution on the world stage as EU ambassador to the United States. In the years in between, he helped to make this country a better place. He had a vision of how to fix problems and he brought a long-term plan for the nation perspective to his work as a TD, a parliamentary secretary, a minister in some of the toughest departments and especially as Tisha. As Minister for Finance in the 1980s, he started the difficult job of repairing our public finances. As Minister for Industry and Energy, he overhauled Irish company law and provided the means for economic growth by enacting new industrial development legislation. As Minister for Trade, Commerce and Tourism, he created new opportunities for Irish business and helped open our country and economy to the world. 30 years ago, this was a very different country when John Bruton became the Taoiseach in 1994. But as Taoiseach, John Bruton changed our country forever and for the better. His knowledge, understanding and deep love of history shone through and helped him as he helped guide him as he worked to create a fairer, more peaceful and more prosperous future for us all. As Taoiseach between 1994 and 97, John Bruton led a partnership government, a rainbow coalition with Labour and Democratic Left, which set our country on a path to peace and prosperity. Before he took office, economic growth was slow and stuttered. Thanks to the policies of the rainbow government, it took off spectacularly in a strong and sustainable way. And I believe he helped lay the foundations for much of the economic prosperity we enjoy today. It's probably no surprise to those of us who knew him well that he called his collection of essays and articles Faith in Politics. John believed in democracy and believed passionately that politics was a noble pursuit that could change lives for the better. In the framework document, which he negotiated with John Major as Prime Minister, we see elements of what later became the Good Friday Agreement, an assembly of 90 members elected by proportional representation weighted majorities for decision-making, north-south bodies, all to be endorsed in a referendum to ensure democratic legitimacy. He detested all forms of violence against other people and worked tirelessly to bring a lasting peace to Ireland. He reached out to the unionist community, the British minority on Ireland, because he genuinely believed that this should be a shared island in which all identities will be respected and he stood up to those who taunted him for believing in the power of constitutional and democratic means rather than coercion or force. He advocated a new patriotism and opposed narrow nationalism. And while these perspectives are now held by the majority of people, that wasn't always the case. And he was willing to lead, even when it meant going against the grain and being unpopular. Principle, not populism, policy solutions, never performative politics. Indeed, some of uh, those values uh, that John Bruton held so deeply were reflected in his speech in 94 when he assumed the office of Antishoch. I wish to thank this House and my colleagues for electing me, for nominating me as Antishoch. It's a high office, but a humbling one. It's a high office because the holder is rightly held responsible for the good governance of this republic. In the same way that I seek simplicity in the office of Taoiseach, 
I seek simplicity in government and national policy. Good government is a public service and it should be kept simple. This is a republic. Public office is a privilege that must be paid for in hard work and long hours. The Taoiseach John Bruton back then in a very different Ireland at different times, a time where there were very different attitudes. He met with Prince Charles, now King Charles in Dublin, the first official visit of a member of the British royal family since independence. Some people mocked that, others boycotted it. In later years that followed, they followed his lead. It was an important act of reconciliation and helped pave the way for the official visit by Queen Elizabeth 16 years later. The significance of that meeting with Prince Charles was not lost on the Taoiseach John Bruton. Your presence here, your courage, your innovation and your initiative in coming here has done more in symbolic and psychological terms to sweep away the legacy of fear and suspicion that has lain between our two peoples than any other event in my lifetime. As Taoiseach, as a Conservative, as a centre-right politician, John Bruton was not always predictable. John Bruton had faith in politics, he had faith in people, and was a man of deep personal faith and conviction. He made a crucial radio address to the Irish people in the days leading up to the divorce referendum in 1995, calling for a yes vote. I remember it well. He spoke from the heart as he reminded listeners, and I quote, that the essence of Christianity is the virtue of charity. It was precisely because of his faith that he understood the power of forgiveness and the importance of compassion, and that shone true. I believe it convinced many people who are wavering to vote yes. And I think the country might not be the modern society it is today had that referendum been lost. I genuinely believe that the sincerity of his appeal from somebody whose sincerity could never be doubted was crucial that week. That intervention by John Bruton, many would say, won the referendum by the smallest of margins. 50.28% yes to 49.72% no. When you can get a margin this close, every vote counts. And if it wasn't for the effort that was made by individuals to talk to people, to encourage them, to realise that they had a responsibility as um, voters in a referendum to make a law for all that would be fair to all and that would be fair to minorities. If people were not reminded of that responsibility, uh, a responsibility they obviously took seriously, we wouldn't have got the results we did. And I'm very, very happy. Uh, for everybody. John Bruton will be remembered politically as TD for County Meath, as uh, the Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland, as a statesman, a a man who had a very important role in European affairs and indeed acted as the EU's ambassador to the United States. In September 1996, John Bruton was invited to speak before a joint session of the US Congress a rare honour for European heads of government. And he made a powerful plea for peace and reconciliation on our island. Never again, he said, a sentiment which continues to inspire all of us today. The solution to the troubles and so many other problems on our island, he believed, was learning to live with difference. Count Corla, John Bruton helped teach us the importance of living with difference. 
whether it was those who had a different religion or political viewpoint, or those with different personal circumstances and beliefs. He was a Christian Democrat in the European tradition, who led with compassion, and in doing so helped to make Ireland a better and fairer place. I believe the Rainbow Coalition of 1994 to 97 was one of our finest governments, but as we know, was not returned in the general election. Fine Gael increased its number of seats by nine, but it wasn't enough to form a coalition. John remained on as leader of the party for another four years, but he, he was never Taoiseach again. But despite the way things ended, he never lost his faith in politics. While his public persona was often intellectual and serious, as a person, he was always good company. Funny, witty, gregarious, sociable, self-deprecating, with a distinctive and infectious laugh. He continued to radiate optimism and confidence and continued to inspire those around him as he worked to improve the lives of others. As Vice President of the European People's Party, he spoke around the world on European and Irish economic and political developments. He also helped draft the proposed European Constitution, which was signed in Rome in October 2004. And I remember well meeting him as a youth delegate to that convention. He was a respected voice on the world stage, and he was asked later that year to leave politics in Ireland to become the European Union's ambassador to the United States. He accepted because he knew he could make a difference, and he always had more to offer. And he helped explain to everyone, from the president to Congress, to local school groups and students, the importance of free trade, free enterprise, and multilateralism for all our countries, as well as the Euro-Atlantic Partnership. I'll never forget having dinner with him in Fanola in his residence in Washington, D.C., nor the fact that he found time to do so with two young councillors who happened to be visiting town. Always persuasive, he showed how the EU benefited the U.S. economy, security, and was good for American jobs. And it was a hugely successful five-year term. John Bruton paved uh, the way for the peace process and indeed economic prosperity in the Republic uh, with the so-called Celtic Tiger, which saw fortunes change and unemployment black spots like Dundalk started to flourish. Dundalk's industrial problems have taken a long time to develop. Um, there were about three times as many people employed in manufacturing here 12 years ago as there are now. Uh, it's been a steady decline. I think this announcement is a turning point because 350 jobs is a lot of jobs uh, on any, in any one industrial announcement. And they're broadly based, four firms, each in a different sector, none too big, all of them with, I think, the sort of security that goes with being a medium-sized firm. Uh, I, I also think that there's an increased better spirit of confidence in Dundalk than, than there's been for quite a time. And it reflects uh, the priority that uh, Dundalk has been given uh, by the IDA. John Bruton may be long retired from politics, uh, but up to his demise, I think many people would ask, did he ever really retire? When he came back to Ireland, he continued to be an influential and courageous voice on subjects that meant the most to him, whether it was historical commemorations or the threat posed by Brexit. He put people before politics and principle before party. A few months after the Brexit referendum, he joined with former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern and spoke before the House of Lords Committee in Britain about the impact Brexit could have on Ireland and how dangerous it was 
that Northern Ireland hadn't been considered properly when the matter was being voted on. He was active to the end, a patriot who was guided by a love of country, not fear or hatred of others. He wanted the best for Ireland, and he did so much to make this a better country. Brexit. Now, there was an argument that John Bruton threw himself into the centre of. There's a real problem. There will be tariffs. If Britain leaves the EU, there will be tariffs to be imposed on imports from the UK into the European Union. Uh, if Britain leaves the, the, the EU, there will be different standards of goods applying uh, in the UK to those that apply in the European Union. And Boris Johnson has said that he intends deliberately, in fact, to diverge from EU standards, presumably to gain some sorts of competitive advantage. But if that happens, the EU will have to um, defend its interests by imposing tariffs. And the arrangements that Boris Johnson proposed for the collection of those tariffs were so sloppy as to be uh, not enforceable. Uh, I, don't believe, I don't believe the European Union would be willing to accept that value-added tax would be collected properly under the arrangements okay. he was proposing or that um, the in- tariffs would be collected either. Many historic moments and political highlights were recalled on the floor of Dáil Éireann yesterday, but there was no doubting the sincerity in how so many of his former colleagues will simply miss the man, John Bruton. My condolences to his beloved wife, Finola, their children, Juliana, Emily, Mary Elizabeth and Matthew, their grandchildren and all their family and friends. And a special mention too to his brother Richard and sister Mary. For a family to contribute one remarkable politician to Irish politics is impressive. To provide two is extraordinary. And in many ways, the Bruton family exemplify all that is best about Irish politics. Their belief in public service and ideas in making a difference is as great a legacy as all they've contributed in terms of policy and legislation. Cancorla, John Bruton will always be remembered for his service to our country. He had faith in politics to make a difference, and he was right. And today we let his family know that his fate was not misplaced. All of us on all political sides will continue to fight for what we believe is just and right, even if we don't always agree. We'll work to make Ireland a better and more prosperous and fairer place. We'll seek to advance the cause of peace and reconciliation on our island, and we'll keep Ireland's place at the heart of Europe. That's the legacy of John Bruton, and we will make it ours too. The Taoiseach, Leo Bradker, leading the tributes in uh, Dáil Éireann yesterday to the late John Bruton. And we'll hear more of uh, those uh, tributes later in uh, the programme today. In the meanwhile, if you'd like to make comment on our programme today, if uh, there's something that uh, you'd like to tell us about, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Many of uh, the local drug and alcohol task forces around uh, the country, along with uh, Barnardo's, the Children's Rights Alliance, the Irish Cancer Society, the Irish Heart Foundation, the Irish Medical Organisation, Irish Road Victims Association, Irish Student Health Association, the ISPCC, Mental Health Reform, No Name Club, the Park Road Safety Group, 
the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland and Alcohol Action Ireland have put their names to an open letter. Indeed, more than 65 groups and individuals have signed uh, this letter, which has been written to the leaders of uh, the three party leaders who are in government uh, and uh, Alcohol Action Ireland uh, is one of uh, these groups. Uh, Dr Shil- Sheila Gilhini is its CEO and joins us now. And a very good morning to you once again, uh, Sheila. Thank you for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, you've written to the government leaders uh, to voice your concern about uh, the amendments to the sale of alcohol bill and you've asked them to step back and think about the impact of that. Absolutely, and thank you very much for having me on. Um, the reason that we've written you know, to the three party leaders is that we can see the impact, the, the potential impact of the proposals in the scene of alcohol bill across multiple areas of, of government. You can see it in relation to children um, and the impact that will be there. You can see it in, if you were talking about domestic violence. Um, we see the evidence from this around the world that if you increase uh, the level of alcohol availability, you increase levels of violence, including sexual and domestic violence, and also violence on, on the street. We know that there's very serious impacts on people's mental health, and you know, you'll know you note um, there was, you know, people working in the areas of suicide prevention have expressed you know deep concern about this. But overall, what we're saying is that there is a very clear call from multiple organisations that before these proposals are taken any further, there needs to be a health impact assessment carried out. And what what we mean by that is you need to get proper facts and figures about what will be the additional burden on services such as our EDs, on our paramedics, Mm -hmm. on hospitals, on the Gardaí. Um, Now, to date, you know, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has said, well, you know, we've carried out consultation and, you know, prior to the to the um, bill mm. being published and we, we've, we've got these views. Well, views are all very well, but what's needed now are hard facts. How many extra Gardaí are going to be needed to, to deal with this? Okay. How many extra, you know, um, medics are going to be needed? It sounds and, to me like, it sounds to me, that. sorry to cut across a bit, but it sounds to me like you're asking a rhetorical question. What do you believe the answer to that question is? Well, we can see that the evidence from around the world is that if you increase licensing hours, you will see an increase in harms that will come from, from alcohol. It's very clear. I mean, things like, you know, just one extra hour of trading, um, alcohol trading is likely to lead to a 16% increase in alcohol-related crime, a 30% increase in traffic collisions in rural areas, and a 34% increase in alcohol-related injuries. So, you know, when we have that information... That's that's the international evidence. But how does that translate then into where we are at here in Ireland? How many extra, what, what, what extra resources want to be put into this? And when those questions are being put to the Minister for Justice, she has repeatedly said it's up to individual departments to do their own planning for this. And they're kind of going, well, this seems extraordinary. Mm. You know, that you have one department who is just willy-nilly, it would appear, uh, going to increase the, the burden that's going to be placed on other departments. And we're saying it's time for the three-party okay. leaders to really look at this and so, say... Just repeat, those I'm sorry, Sheila, just repeat those statistics, if you would, again, finding it hard to take in because it, it sounds yeah. pretty incredible. You're saying that if pubs, let's say, open an hour longer, there'll be an increase in the number of people falling down and injuring themselves, other people beating them up and people getting into cars uh, and causing accidents. 
Yes, that, that, that's the, that is the international evidence on this. This is very well researched. Um, the, the World Health Organization would have published a report uh, recently actually drawing attention to, you know, the link between alcohol availability mm. and all of these additional harms. And, you know, we only have to look up the road in Northern Ireland. They increased their licensing hours back in October 2021, and they saw a 17% increase in alcohol-related crime, which matches very, very closely with that international evidence that, that I just pointed to. So we have all of this evidence, and we're saying, why why mm. not actually do the planning then to, to look at this? Mm. Well, uh, what does that entail? Does that entail not going ahead, or is uh, there actual planning that can make it work? Well, we think in the first instance you need to carry out a health impact assessment. So you look at the situation as it would apply here in Ireland and you look at the impact um, of these proposals on, on various aspects of, of health and social care. And there are, there, there's uh, the, the Institute of Public Health would have very clear guidelines on how to carry out a uh, health impact assessment. It's a well-known tool. Mm. It's something that, that can certainly be done. And we've been calling for this, along with multiple other groups, uh, for over a year now um, sure. since, the, since this bill. But as I say, uh, that, that request sounds like a rhetorical question. And you have this international evidence, which you say is what we can expect here. So if that is the case, can we plan properly uh, for such a, a scenario or is the only way to deal with this not to proceed with extending licensing hours and premises that are licensed to sell alcohol? We would say do not increase the licensing hours. That That is exactly what we, we do say. Um, and what we are saying in answer when the Minister says, oh, we have taken public health into account, we're going, you clearly haven't taken it into account because if you had, you would, you would A, not be contemplating increasing licensing hours and B, if you were contemplating increasing it, you would also put in steps to ameliorate it in some sort of way. You would actually do the calculations for, you know, the, the extra resources that, that are going to be to be needed. Neither of those two things have been done and we're drawing attention to that. And you know something, it's not just us or indeed these 66 um you know, advocates who have come forward, you know, in, in this letter. But we know from public polling on this that two thirds of people have expressed concern about the impact on, on public services. So we're really saying here, who are the people who are calling for this? It is vested interests who are seeking, you know, to have these increased licensing hours. It's not public demand. And, and it's certainly not the demand uh, from within health and social care of people who are working on the coal face who will actually be the people who will be most impacted by, by these proposals. Okay, outside of tourists, I, I take it that a, a lot of uh, the customers who will be drinking lo- uh, late at night in, in these new extended hours will be those people who work for frontline services, people coming off late shifts. I don't think you'll find anybody who's working in EDs uh, around the country who are already under enormous pressure, as, as we hear day in, day out. I don't think you will find that they will be looking to increase um, the, you know, the, 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 those hours uh, in order to... They might want to go for a pint, though, after work is the point. I, the point that I would be saying mm. is that people who are working the front line know absolutely the impact that this will cause on their working lives. Mm. Um, you know, as it stands... At, at weekends in particular, you will find that 30% of uh, presentation to um, hospital EDs 
are in relation to alcohol. Now, our EDs are practically on their knees at the moment. I mean, you know that as to be the case. Mm, mm. Why would they seek to have an increase uh, in that burden? Mm. Okay, um, but I think that tourists will uh, stay out because they don't have work the next day uh, and occasionally people who drink responsibly will stay out because there's an occasion of some sort or, or maybe they've a, a day off. But when it comes to the type of problems that you're talking about, is it not right to assume that people who drink to excess and then drink even more than that because the pub is open later are alcoholics? You know, what we're saying is you can look at the evidence and we're not actually targeting anybody individually You know, on this. We would actually say that the, the proportion of people who are dependent on, on alcohol is actually quite small as an overall proportion of people who are drinking in, in ways that, that lead to harm. Uh, and there's actually very good evidence of, of that, you know, because it, it's just that the actual numbers of people who are dependent on, on alcohol are quite small in comparison to this overall level of high level of, of um, problematic drinking that we would have. So about half of the, of, of the population who drink would drink in a way that, that causes difficulty, not necessarily because they are dependent on, on alcohol. And you believe that they'll drink all the more if the pub is open later, they won't go home at the usual time? Or they won't go out later. Again, all I can do is to point to the evidence right. that if, mm. if they're they're open, they are. But I have to tell you that the reverse is true as well. You know, there's there's very good evidence actually just recently been published um, in studies in, in Australia where they um, reduced their late night uh, uh, drinking mm. uh, licensing, and they found that a two hour reduction in late night um, licensing hours led to a 29 percent decrease in domestic violence. So the opposite is also true as as well. So both okay. increasing increases the harm, decreasing mm. decreases the harm. So maybe we should go back to 11 o'clock closing, half 11, wasn't it Saturday, 10 o'clock Sunday, holy hour, that sort of thing? I'm saying that before we do anything, we need to actually make the calculations and work out what is the impact of that. And, you know, our TDs would be voting on this and they're going to be voting without the full knowledge of what the cost would actually be unless this type of assessment is carried out. So I think it's just a reasonable thing to say, before you make a change, how about you do a bit of calculation here and work out what's the impact and then make the, your decision, you know, in the full light of the full facts. OK, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us today. Dr Sheila Gilhaney is the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, we'll return to Dal Aaron and indeed uh, the tributes to the late uh, John Bruton, this particular tribute from his brother Richard. First of all, I'd just like to thank colleagues for uh, the beautiful tributes uh, that have been made. Um, John was so proud of this house, everything about it, um, and it is so nice to see uh, him mem- remembered in such a, a warm way. Um, I'd like to thank you on behalf of Fanola, Matthew, Juliana, Emily, and of course my sister Mary. And I should say the next generation, Ophelia, Hugo, Oliver, and Robin, who are the apple of his eye, as they say, and buoyed him up, particularly during his long illness. Um, I think it was Kieran said, you know, how Ireland has changed since John entered politics. You go back to 1969, we had one million people employed, and now we have two and a half. 2.6 2.6 million. One in 20 probably got to third level. Now two in every three or more get to third level. Uh, we have transformed from being you know, a narrow society, very inward looking, uh, almost reactionary, to one that is so much more open and 
you know, fulfilled in so many ways and inclusive of so many people of different views. Uh, and it has never been plain sailing, but I think Irish politics, of which this house is, is the exemplar, has a lot to be proud of, um, and we should reflect on that. John loved politics, and he loved politicians, um, and he nothing he liked better than the company of politicians, and he was fortunate to have so many friends, not just in the, our party, but across parties, um, who, you know, he enjoyed their company and he enjoyed working with them. As people have said, he had strong beliefs, but I think he did see politics as the art of resolving conflict ultimately. And that often requires you to understand the views of others. And as Brendan said, they might not always be on the same track, but he did find that way of finding the middle ground. He was a pioneer of reform of this house, and he would be very proud of how it has evolved. And he would be very thankful, and I'd like to thank on his behalf, the people who make this house happen, from the Dáil Bar, of course, which is an important part, but right through to the library and the, 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 all the services of the house. You know, they made his life and they have been so welcoming to him over so many years that he has used this house. He believed that the European Union was <clears throat> the greatest uh, creation in international collaboration that was ever made, that countries having war together would come together voluntarily to try and achieve more together than they could on their own. Uh, and he saw it as a great opportunity for Ireland, but he didn't see it just in those ways. I suppose as someone who grew up in the shadow of World War II and with a great sense of history, he saw it as something to be built and he pushed his back into trying to build the European Union as well as you know, seeing how important it was to, for Irish destiny. He was, as people said, um, a man of a lot of ideas. Um, over one weekend, he wrote a plan for the nation. Uh, so he didn't lack ambition. <laughs> uh, and I uh, had to sometimes uh, tidy these texts up. <laughs> but, you know, one of the, the abiding loves of John's life was learning. He was a voracious leader, reader, a voracious appetite for new ideas, and he never lost that interest in the next thing that was coming up. Uh, my earliest uh, experience of his love of education was when he was given the task of teaching Mary and myself French uh, when we were quite small. But I don't know how successful his French teaching was. It was a time of um, French without tears uh, was the, uh, the, the high point of, of French learning. But both of us uh, still speak the language and have an abiding love of it. So he did, he did do a, a, a lot. And education was something that he was very proud of uh, to, to promote it. I suppose politics matters because it allows us to big things and little things that make people's lives better. And he always traveled under the slogan, you know, every person counts. I think he, he brought it into his, his dealings with everyone. And I'd have to say that he has struggled himself um, over the past year and more. Uh, you know, those acts of kindness that he provided have been repaid a thousand times over by the care eh, and the support that he has got from people here, people in hospitals, um, you know, people have been so nice and decent to him. Uh, and particularly, you know, Fanola and family who cared for him so well over a long period. Uh, you know, there's, they want to just acknowledge that. Great to see my 
of John's colleague, John Farley here, uh, who he soldiered with uh, over so many years. And I'd just like to thank Eulas Cancorla, the Cancorla, the Taoiseach, uh, and all members of the House for providing this time uh, to reflect on, on John's contribution. It will certainly buoy us up um, over these times, and it is greatly appreciated. Thanks. Richard Bruton, remembering his late brother, John Bruton. Michael Reed on LMFM. The state's continuing failure to address the root causes of the enduring crisis in health, housing, poverty and the cost of living with forward-looking, innovative and sustainable solutions resorting instead to short-term emergency and temporary measures has been highlighted by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission in a report to the United Nations. Nolan Blackwell is a member of IHREC. I reckon a very good morning to you, Nolan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Good morning, Michael. Your report is a parallel report to the government's yes. own report, and it's the fourth periodic review. A very different report, your report, I'm sure, to that of the government's. Yeah, so the the reason the report is done at all is that Ireland signed up and ratified this UN core human rights treaty on economic, social and cultural rights back in 1989, a very long time ago. And that is a treaty where the, where the state guarantees to the United Nations that it will respect protect and promote the economic, social and cultural rights of people within its jurisdiction. And what the state does then is, is every so often, the committee that is under that treaty asks Ireland to report on it. It's nine years since we did it last. The last time we did it, 2015, we were really still coming out of the recession, Michael, and it's a different kind of a report now. So the state puts in its report and it inevitably puts its best foot forward and says we're making progress mm-hmm. across a whole lot of ways. And then different groups put in different parallel reports, like the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission is Ireland's national body for human rights and equality. It's kind of independent. It's not um, a, an, an organisation working on the ground, but it is, it is there to protect and promote the human rights of everyone in Ireland. So it puts in its parallel report. That was launched yesterday. It's with the committee. It gives a different perspective. And today, a, a group of civil society organisations, so community and voluntary organisations working on this issue, they're launching their own report and it too will go to the UN, which will look at all of them next week. And then it will make some, it, it will praise Ireland where it feels it has done well. And as indeed our commission report did as well, we recognise some mm. areas where Ireland had improved, but it also highlights where more progress is needed. Uh, and the community and voluntary sector report will be the same. And you say we're not doing well in health, housing, poverty and the cost yes. of living. Can you join up uh, the dots or, or tell us where the gap is? Because this is one of the richest countries in the world, is it yes. not? And you say that there's people in this country, despite all of the wealth in this country, who don't have the right to an adequate standard of living. They 
lack the basic resources to live with dignity. How is that the case? Yeah, to live with dignity and to live decently. I mean, we use the word decent regularly during uh, the report and it's important. Uh, So when you break it all down, when you go back to the base, when you look at the various rights, and these are rights that are affecting people who are listening to us today on this conversation, the right to a decent job, uh, the right to a, to a decent accommodation, to, to decent access to health services, education. These are areas where some people in Ireland are doing very nicely indeed, thank you. And there are some then who just can't as a result mainly of poverty, of discrimination, of inequality. They are not able to get these things. So if I take one that's sort of, you know, everyone says, do we have the money to do it? But the state in this, once it ratified this treaty, once it said, we are committed to giving this to every person in our jurisdiction, once they did that, they were obliged to use all available resources to to bring together something that would lift people who are in poverty, poverty generation after generation, who've had inadequate housing for years, who've been discriminated against for generations as well. The state had to use all available resources. That means the funding we have available. And in some ways, a lot of what our report is talking about is not saying spend a million here or 500,000 there. It's saying put structures in place that will actually get rid of extreme poverty. Don't be lurching from crisis to emergency to crisis again. These are our recommendations to government. And what we're hoping with these recommendations is that the committee will be able to have a good conversation with the Irish representatives who are over at that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hearing next week that they will have a good conversation and that Ireland will be able to uh, use the debate that happens there to do more to actually carry out its promises which are now made more than 40 years ago to ensure that that as a result of inequality, that people are not living in poverty, that they can get a decent education, that they can get access to health services. We all know, literally, just from you know the news today that you, you have just broadcast, that there are people who cannot access these things. Some of them are particularly vulnerable. Some of them are particularly unable to make their voices heard. And they, their rights, are not being protected. Their rights are not being protected mm. and and respected. Uh, and as you, as you say, Noli, most people are, are, are doing okay in this country and we are a, a very charitable country. Uh, it's in the DNA, uh, I think, to a large extent. But for such a wealthy country, should there be a need for charity? I think uh, one of yeah. the striking things in, in your report is how you highlight the state's reliance on uh, the voluntary uh, sector and civil society. 
Yeah, and and we go further than that, and we say that the state relies on them to carry out the duties, and that's fine. You know, some of the community and voluntary organisations doing that work, they're exactly the right people to be doing it. But the state doesn't fund them correctly. And if, if it does fund them, it funds them kind of from year to year, or it says, we will give you money for this year. But if, if, if the state is to carry out its obligations to make sure that people who are particularly vulnerable are getting services, people with disabilities, people mm. from migrant communities, people who are in extreme poverty, then there should be a more organised way to fund uh, community organisations that are doing sometimes amazing work mm. on little or no funding. There should be They should be getting a funding that they know will last from year to year so that you can hire someone. You know, it's just like, it's not fair to expect people to go into a job if they're told, well, we only have money for you until the end of the year. Let's make sure that, that the, when the state are funding these organisations, they're not giving them charity. What they're doing is they're saying, will you do part of the job that we, the state, are supposed to do, but that you'll do better? Grand. All that's good and fine, but we will ensure that you have the resources and the infrastructure you need to do it. All right. Uh, the biggest hospital in this region is our, our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda and would serve, for the most part, the people listening to us this morning. And, you know, I was very concerned for anybody who needed to go to the emergency department this week, uh, because yeah. on Monday, I think there was about 25 people waiting on, on trolleys. Uh, and what that means in reality is a nightmare. You could be waiting a day or two or even more to be seen uh, in the hospital. Uh, but to put that into context, uh, if there was 25 people in Drogheda in that nightmare situation, there was 150 people in Limerick, which is just unthinkable, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's at the level of the hospital. But in your bulletin just before you spoke to me, you also had that some people were having to maybe pay up to €70 Euro to see um, a GP. Mm. So you... So you know, 70 euro is a lot of money for anyone unless you're very well off. You know, you don't drop 70 euro casually. Even 30 euro is an awful lot for people. So we have, again, we have some really good models that have been started by the state, but are they being resourced? Slaunchy Care was to lead to a system whereby everybody at a local level was able to get the attention that they needed, which would take some of the pressure off A&D rooms Mm. along the way. So it's in the Sometimes it's not a question of more money, Michael. It's a question of, is the policy that's being delivered, is the way the decisions that are being made, are they the ones that will ensure that everyone in our society has access to adequate health care, adequate housing, adequate education and a Mm. decent job? Mm. Like a decent job, for instance, one of the main recommendations that we make in our report is We've a really bad structure of collective bargaining. Not only is it like it, it's bad for doing what it's supposed to do, yeah. but it's even bad by European standards. That's a policy decision. Mm. That's not necessarily a money decision. That's you where know. trade unions so can negotiate a, on your behalf. Uh, can yeah. we can we conclude on housing though, uh, Nolene? Because yeah. you said it's not a, a matter of money, and we've had a housing crisis in this country for fifteen years or more, perhaps, yeah. and we're putting millions, no billions, into housing, yeah. but we continue to have a housing crisis. Why yeah. is that the case? Yes. So, so we have been some things we've been able to fix, you know, at speed when 
they needed to be fixed. And the example I go back to, which many of your listeners weren't even born when it happened, was when the financial recession happened. And we put together the biggest land bank in the world, in NAMA, in a matter of three months, in a piece of legislation that's too heavy to go on a table, it'll break a table. But nonetheless, we were able to do it. So... I know. I mean, it's not fair to say that the government is doing nothing about this. The government is doing a lot about it. Local authorities are doing a lot about it. But they joined up thinking to make sure that children, women, men, people with vulnerabilities are not in emergency accommodation, not just for days, but for weeks and months and sometimes even years. There's, There's something amiss with a country that is not panicking about that. And and in some ways, we have panicked from time to time. We do one thing, then we do another. But it's not solving the problem. It's not that the housing crisis is easy to fix. But neither is it a case that we should be or could be content with people being in emergency insecure accommodation and we're not even counting some of the people who are living in crowded accommodation with families and the rest of it. So it is fixable and this is where again I think these meetings that happen between the UN committee and the government with input from the Human Rights and Equality Commission with input from community and voluntary organisations they help to put a focus on something and say there's a, a mindset that isn't saying this cannot continue, particularly for the poorest and most vulnerable in our land. OK, Nolene, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Nolene Blackwell is a member of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, it was around half one, apparently, on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, that somebody took it upon themselves uh, to set fire to a very fine house. I'm sure you've seen the house on television in the newspapers today. All of uh, the newspapers have photographs of this very fine house, once very fine house now that has been badly damaged, a seven-bedroom property. It's the 23rd time that somebody has tried to burn down a perfectly fine building rather than allow it to be used to accommodate people from other countries in what the Tánaiste Mimal Martin has uh, described as an organised campaign of arson attacks. Let's uh, speak uh, to local TD for Kildare, Fianna Falls, James Lawless. Uh, a very good morning to you, James. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I'm sure people in Leakslip were very shocked to learn of this terrible crime, especially given that it was never intended as an accommodation centre. Yeah, there's good morning, Michael. Uh, there's great, I suppose, shock and upset in Leakslip this morning and overnight. Um, people, I mean, this is another landmark building, uh, a fine old residence, uh, quite uh, within the heart of the town. And kind of mindless vandalism, actually, because, as you said, this wasn't even going to be a refugee centre. Not that there'd be an excuse for a minute, if it was. But the fact that it was never even on the plans to be one, and in fact couldn't be one under the planning laws because it was a residence, um, and, and private residences are not uh, considered within the rules for accommodation centres. So really, um, shock up and upset. Mm. Um, but I suppose the first thing I want to say is, this is the 23rd, as you said in the head of the piece, such attack in recent uh, months, but I think the last 18 months. Arson is a very serious crime. It's punishable by up to a life sentence. 
So this is not a consequence-free action. And I know the leaks of Garda Station are having a briefing this morning at 11 o'clock. They'll be walking through the steps they're going to take in terms of pursuing this. And, and of course, Garda forces around the country are doing similar. It's taken a while to get, get these people. But mm. I have no doubt that they will be apprehended and they will face very, very significant consequences when they're brought before a court. OK, well, it should uh, command a life sentence uh, because if you set fire to uh, any property, uh, you can't claim afterwards if someone died or was badly injured that you were surprised. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you set fire to something, the whole intention of what you're doing surely is to destroy it. And, you know, they might try and say, well, these are vacant properties. You know, not that that's, again, any excuse. But who knows who could be sleeping in one of these. You could have a homeless person. You could have a vulnerable person. You could have somebody doing work. You Mm. could have a caretaker. You could have the owner or maybe a family member that might be kind of keeping an eye on the place. Um, you could have passers-by, you could have kids, you know, in around an old property. Um, you, you don't know who could be in there. And mm. the idea that you can just flick a match, set fire to it deliberately, and walk away from it, and, and you know, perhaps be delighted mm. at your work, beggars belief for any right-minded person. And I suspect as well that I think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that all these 23 different fires were started by 23 different groups. I think that maybe some of those agitating... Yeah. I'd like to suggest that, oh, local reaction was so strong it brought them to this. Can the, cu- can, can, can the culprits be pinpointed? I have to say I feel very sorry for the owner because I, I read in the papers this morning that this was recently sold and it's a fine house. Right. I'm sure somebody paid yeah. a lot of money for it, only for somebody else yeah. to come along and destroy it like that. But leaflets were uh, delivered to households uh, in leaks about this. Were they? Uh, can can uh, we pinpoint who, who delivered those leaflets? I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow that they were responsible for this attack, but uh, I suppose it might uh, be a starting point. It might indeed. So there was, I think, two different leaflets put around. One, just after the Christmas period, there was a leaflet put out saying that this could be a, a, a refugee centre. And then a second leaflet was put out after... I suppose official sources had, had denied that it was going to be one and confirmed it couldn't be one. And a second leaf was put out after that, uh, again sort of putting out this myth. And, I mean, you'd wonder who finances these leaflets, who, who pays for them, who, who distributes them, and where are the resources coming from. Um, I think that there's a small but well-resourced group who are putting themselves into communities, not local, not from those communities, uh, but making it their business to insidiously track down and monitor on social media where there's a protest or, or a concern or, or a rumour, jump in, spread the lies, spread the rumour, and then get involved in this kind of thing. And I think really, it's a really nasty insidious streak that hasn't been seen in our society mm. or politics, thankfully, before now. Um, and we really have to get on top of it very fast. Right. Uh, the same people who uh, say that they're patriots uh, and uh, the likes of right. James Lawless or anybody in your Fianna Fáil party or any of uh, the political parties are traitors. Yeah, but the amazing thing is we all got elected. Everybody in Northern Ireland got elected by the <laughs> yes. people. Um, I don't know how many of these fellas ever got. Mm. Yeah, well, they're very vocal uh, and they make themselves uh, appear... Uh, to represent a significant uh, amount of people. But that not, that's not really the situation, is it? I mean, I, I think most people in this country are, are decent people and wouldn't want to be associated in any way with this kind of criminality. No, not at all. And look, I, I've dealt with uh, refugee accommodation centres in, in there across my own constituency at local level as well. And you see the same pattern. You see a rumour comes out, uh, such and such a property is being earmarked for uh, accommodation, 
there is initially a concern and confusion, and there is many, many decent, ordinary people have questions, legitimate questions, uh, to say, well, who is going in, how many people, when, for how long, were they need school places, were they need TV places, and those conversations are perfectly healthy and right and normal that they mm. would come through. And that's the middle ground, and actually that's the vast majority of people. And then you have a very small cohort uh, of extremists, I think, who are whipped up deliberately by, by social media and by kind of leaflets and all that, and they come in then, and, and actually I saw in my own area in Salons where a speaker came down, uh, a far-right uh, figurehead, tried to address the protest, and thankfully the locals ran him. They said, really? we don't want mm. you here. We don't want to be part of this. We have our own questions and concerns, but you don't represent us. Mm. And I was very glad, actually, to see that happen. Absolutely, uh, because I think the reality of it is is they are gaining traction, and to some degree, they're winning. Uh, because yeah. I, I think that if anybody has a property they're thinking of leasing or considering maybe then uh, not leasing it out but offering it as accommodation for people who are seeking international protection, they may be afraid that they'll end up in the same situation as the person who just bought this house, that their property will be destroyed by one of these nutters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but if, I suppose if we follow that through as well, as with this case, you, you also just let's consider a family or, 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 or whoever, a couple or individual, who has bought a family home for themselves, maybe an old property anywhere in Ireland, with a view to doing it up maybe uh, and turning it into a, a fine residence for themselves and their family once again. And that's at risk of being burnt down now as well because of this kind of nonsense. Because people can think they can identify any derelict building anywhere in the country, point a flag, hoist a flag, put out a few leaflets and say, let's burn it to the ground. And really, I mean, it's complete breakdown of law and order. Um, it cannot be allowed to continue. Um, I have asked that the Minister of Justice and the Garda Commissioner will come before my Justice Committee to, to outline exactly what is being done uh, to, to combat this. Mm. I'm sure they're doing everything they can, but we need to get into the detail of that mm. and we need to explore what resources they may need additionally uh, to enable them to do that. Indeed, you're the Chair of the Justice Committee. Uh, what are your own thoughts on that? What do you think should be done to prevent people from burning down properties or indeed to give property owners some reassurance that their property won't be burnt down if it's left vacant, whether or not they're going to uh, offer it uh, as an accommodation centre to the Department of Integration. Yeah, well, we can't make it any more serious a crime than it is because, I say, it actually already carries the maximum sentence of up to life imprisonment. But what we could see is prosecutions. We could see detection, apprehension, uh, people being brought before a court. Um, I know in the case of the Dublin riots, which happened last November, we're beginning to see now a number of people being brought before the courts, rightly so. I'm mm. very glad to see that. Three arrests but this morning, actually. Time. Yep. It was the three, I didn't know that, three yes. further arrests. And mm-hmm. I know there was a man mm. arrested a couple of days ago before the court, and there were others arrested over the Christmas uh, holiday. So it does take time, good police work. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I think really this, the sooner the better we can track down what I believe to be a small gang uh, performing these arson attacks. I think if we get three or four people, that might actually be uh, the, the, the extent of it. Uh, no. And if we can apprehend those, bring them to justice and nip this out. And perhaps, like the good people in Salins, our listeners can respond to this type of rhetoric in the same way they did and say, you're not welcome here, you don't represent us, uh, take your argument back uh, to the UK. Nigel Farage is very interested in what you have to say. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what I'd like to see that happening around the country. I think, to be fair, many communities are doing that, but I think that's the best way. If people can vote at their feet, 
in every sense and, and tell these people they're not wanted, their, their hateful rhetoric is not welcome. Um, legitimate questions, of course, can and should be aired and, and engaged with the local public representatives uh, across all parties, uh, but people coming down looking for a row, looking for a riot, looking to burn the business to the ground um, is completely apparent to any normal right-minded citizen. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That is James Lawless, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare and indeed uh, the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Justice Committee. Now, if you want to make comment, we've plenty of time before we finish up today for comments uh, and I'll be coming to some of the messages that have come to us uh, this morning in a couple of minutes' time. But if you want to add to what's being said, please give us a, a call on 0419832000 and let us know. Speak to us. Tell us what's on your mind. Uh, we let everybody else know. 0419832000. That's if you want to ring us. You can text your message for that matter or WhatsApp it 0861800658. That's 0861800658 if you want to text or WhatsApp us today. And as always, you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, thanks uh, to John Joe in Ashburn who's been in touch with us. Uh, he's asking if anybody listening in Monaghan uh, can give us details of the GPs that are charging €30. Euro. He says uh, he's willing to drive to Monaghan uh, to save €30. Euro. Uh, it'll be uh, cheaper for him to spend money uh, on petrol driving to Monaghan to see a GP there if he could get to see one. So if you have uh, any details of a GP in Monaghan who's charging €30 Euro a, a visit, could you please let us know who they are, <laughs> telephone number and address, air code if possible, he says, uh, and uh, pass it on uh, because uh, he thinks that that would uh, suit him very well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you indeed for highlighting what uh, the Tanisha has uh, been describing as uh, discrimination was that the word he used? Uh, that people shouldn't be discriminated based on their address uh, and that would appear to be the case if you're paying €30 Euro in Monaghan and up to €80 Euro in uh, Dublin, in some parts of Dublin. I've never heard of €80 Euro before that report in uh, the Irish Independent. I, I think €50, €60 Euro would be normal uh, in this part of the world. Certainly last time we spoke about the cost of GPs, a lot of people were in touch with us giving us figures like that around 50, 60 euro. Uh, if you're paying less than 50 or 60 euro and if you're in County Loud or if you're in County Meath, maybe you'd let us know uh, because uh, it is interesting to think why are some GPs charging less than the other. If you think about it, they're doing the same thing, aren't they? You know, they're having a, a look at your sore arm or your sore throat or your upset stomach or whatever it is. Uh, maybe checking your heart. I No, it's all very, very important. But no matter where you go to see the doctor, the doctors are doing the same thing. People are people and we end up with the same complaints uh, at different stages in our lives. Uh, of course, you've got to take into account the cost of the property or the cost of renting the property. Uh, heat and light and insurance uh, and so on should be uh, the same, but I but imagine it comes down to property if there's a, a difference 
in the cost of running a GP surgery. Uh, I, I don't know, wouldn't know much about it, but uh, uh, perhaps uh, you'd let us know if you have any thoughts on that. 0419832000 if you want to ring us, text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Jim and Navin was in touch with us very early this morning. Thanks for your message, Jim. He says, why do we need to pay ministers when they do nothing, only give lip service, such as the health minister, Stephen Donnelly. The HSE is a disaster and he's not capable of improving it. The nurses and the doctors are run off their feet and he and his pals are planning freebie trips around the world for St. Patrick's Day while children suffer in pain waiting for spinal operations. Something doesn't add up, says Jim and Navin. Well, thanks indeed uh, for that, uh, Jim. I'm sure there's an awful lot of good work that's been done in the health services and I'm sure a lot of that will be attributed to the minister but I think the minister um, like his predecessors has many serious problems on his hand including spinal ops as you say Jim including 150 people can you imagine 150 people on trolleys in University Hospital Limerick yesterday just beyond anyone's comprehension Tom, thank you for your text. Tom is in Navin and he says, good morning. Uh, Regarding John Bruton, firstly, may he rest in peace. Secondly, Tom says, why is nobody talking about the 18% fat uh, he he wanted to put on kids' shoes and clothes? Uh, What must a man be thinking uh, to do such a thing, Tom says? Uh, well, uh, we did mention it on the programme yesterday when we were speaking to Gavin Riley, Tom. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you missed that or, or not, but thanks for your message. Uh, Deirdre and Cal says, Mike, John Bruton, may he rest in peace. He had a great laugh and he was a great ambassador for the country. Thank you, as always, Deirdre and Kells. Um, I had a text from Bridie. I didn't quite understand um, your uh, text. I think it might be typos. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but um, she's talking about little huts um, and she's wondering why there's a, we're wasting money uh, when homeless people are on the streets. Um, thank you indeed uh, for your text. Uh, James, uh, wondering what the motivation for setting buildings on fire is. Uh, and uh, he says there could be all sorts of reasons for it that we can't uh, mention on the radio, James, uh, because there's some very live uh, investigations going on. But if it's because people simply hate other people that they don't know, well, what does it say about those people? All right, uh, we're going back to go back to the doll yesterday and the tributes uh, that were made across the political divide. Uh, we've been hearing this morning from... John Bruton's Fine Gael colleagues uh, and those uh, who would have uh, served in government with him. Uh, we'll hear another tribute uh, now, this one from Bernard Durkin. I, um, I see John Farley sitting up there in, in, in the gallery and we both go back a long way, back to when we were both councillors and we first had direct dealings with John Bruton. Uh, I as a councillor in Kildare, which was part of the Mead, North Kildare constituency at the time, and um, John as a councillor in Meath, which was part of the same constituency. Uh, it, was, it was a learning time, a time of great learning, because uh, John taught us how to work hard, to keep our eye on the target and to stick with it, and, and to be resolute in the pursuit of, of objectives that were noble. And that s- summed up 
his attitudes to public life at that particular time. I think he taught as well. We never lost the work ethic. And I think it was, it was I remember on, uh, uh, after the clinics on a weekend, we get the letter from John, who was Minister for State in the 73-77 government. And it was in inimitable flowing hand, all handwritten, could have up to a dozen letters at the time, all making representations about people in my constituency, as I said, on the Kildare side, uh, of people who were, who were in dire straits, who weren't in a good place at the time, and that was his compassion. That's the way he had of bringing it, teaching us, uh, you know, be alert to this, this is happening, do something, a hint. He would never come back and say to you, why didn't you do it? And well, we thought better anyway, we thought, we thought it was as well to do it first. He was a man of words, a man of integrity, a man of vision. He was, he was, he was all that we would want ourselves to be. Uh, to, 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 to this, to me, constituency, to this house, to this country, and to the international community. He gave of his all, all the time. And his interest was, was, was never ending. He was a good, good historian, a good European historian, and he knew where all the issues arose and had been pushed to one side, had been resolved or hadn't been resolved. He was a great believer in, 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 in the spoken word as a means of achieving what the sword and the bullet couldn't or could never do. So we learned all that from him. He was a familiar figure at every Fine Gael event all through the 70s and from the late 60s, up and down the country in his inimitable uh, fashion of addressing the, 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 the congregation uh, without notes, without any notes whatsoever, and was able to speak for as long as he wished uh, and sometimes longer than the rest of us wished. But he, he, he never lost it. He, he never lost it. But he, he, was, he was also a, a man of the unexpected. The unexpected is important in politics. Uh, I, I, and I always remember there was some kind of an upheaval in our party at one particular time. Uh, there were many. I, I, would, I would hasten to add there were many. Oh, you're doing well now. But a, a number of, of, of brave delegates who were, who, who, who were, who were uh, elevated in the party at the time decided to visit him in his office and ask him if he would be uh, interested in changing his ways or that, he, that you know, he should consider his position. And he inquired as to where they came, where they were coming from, and on what basis they were. Well, as members of the front bench, uh, there was the reply. When he said, you don't represent the front bench anymore because I sacked you yesterday. <laughs> that, that, was, that was John Bruden. No, he would, he would, when we told him that, recalled it, recalled it to him afterwards, he laughed like, and enjoyed it as if it was the first time. But that was, was, was something that he, he saw needed to be done. So he was chastising somebody. He, he was having a laugh about it at the same time. And, and he was moving on. He never held a bitter word. In, in, uh, for people, even with those with whom he disagreed. And I remember one time saying to him, um, we, there was only a river between us, uh, by the way, a couple of miles, and he, he said, let it be always thus. <laughs> he said, not the river, that's, oh, it wouldn't be drained or something like that. So anyway, we enjoyed each other. And we enjoyed the joining constituencies, and it was full of thrills and spills, and, and, and the, the, the expected and the unexpected. I'll finish by simply saying that he was great to be with. He made a huge contribution to this country. He made a huge contribution to the, 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 the continent of Europe. 
And he continued to make that right up until his passing. I think he was a man of conviction, a man of honor, a man of integrity, and a man who set about doing the things by peaceful means, what others had failed to do by other means. And that tribute from Bernard Durkin in uh, the doll yesterday. Uh, we'll hear more before we finish up. Uh, thanks, Bridie, for getting back to us. Uh, as I said, I wasn't sure uh, what Bridie was saying. She says, the government has put up little huts for us to return bottles to, and we have recycling bins and glass bins, and why waste this money uh, when there's so many homeless existing on our streets? Hopefully, uh, Bridie, time will prove that this is a worthwhile thing, that instead of plastic bottles ending up in bins that uh, somebody will say, well, I could do with the 15 cent or the 25 cent and they may take them out of the bins and recycle them uh, to get the money back or pick them up off the street or that instead of us just throwing everything into the bin ourselves uh, that we'll say, I could do with the 15 cent or the 25 cent and uh, go uh, up to one of those little huts as you describe it and uh, recycle them and get the money back. Hopefully that uh, will prove to be worthwhile. It may be a waste of time as you say, Bridie, but time will tell. And thank you indeed for your message to the programme as always. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Betty Daly has been uh, texting us uh, this morning. Thanks for your message, Betty. She says, Michael, that man was right about ministers getting paid for nothing. Our Minister for Finance has no money and the Health Minister hasn't even got a first aid box. <laughs> Thank you, Betty. <laughs> I think uh, the tongue is stuck firmly in the cheek there, uh, but I'm sure many people will get the point. Thank you indeed. Uh, somebody else in touch saying, yes, GPs do the same thing, no matter where you are uh, they send everyone to emergency departments hospitals are overwhelmed with patients that in my humble opinion could have been treated by a GP or at the very least their local unit that's a, an interesting uh, text uh, I'm sure uh, quite often uh, you see people it's one of those things I never understand uh, why people go to the emergency department and then leave before they're seen because they get fed up uh, should they have been there in the first place uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with us. Uh, uh, he's been listening to the tributes, I'm sure, to John Bruton that were made in the doll yesterday. And he says, Janie, that well, wasn't the word he used, but he says, Janie, let's just canonise them and have a, another public holiday. <laughs> Thanks, Paddy. Another the, a John Bruton day. Um, I don't think anybody would argue. In fact, uh, I see uh, that the Irish Congress of Trade Unions are saying that there should be at least two more public holidays if uh, we are to be in line with our European counterparts. Uh, but I'm not sure that I'll be holding my breath waiting for uh, another bank holiday to be announced by the government. Uh, I'm sorry, Paddy. <laughs> We're going to hear another tribute uh, from uh, one of uh, John Bruton's colleagues uh, from uh, his time in Irish politics. This time it's Michael Ring. And I stood in the by-election in, in 1994 and John Bruton, for two weeks before that, was under tremendous pressure, and mean, I mean pressure. And we won that by-election against all the odds. And I remember on RTA that night, and Jim Fahey sent it on to me, I said, and Leo, I want you to listen to this. It, this was in May. I said, before the year is out, I said, John Bruton, El Bateshuk. In the Kinney, I'll have a full care and I'll have a half care. John Bruton was Taoiseach. In the Kinney got the full care, but I got no care. 
But, but to be fair, in 1997, John Bruton sat where the Taoiseach is sitting now, and at 12 o'clock of the day, he adjourned the doll, and we were having a general election. And he whispered something into my ear, which you'll have to buy the book, and I'm not going to tell you today what he said to me. And on two weeks ago, Richard knows this, two weeks ago, I spoke to John, it wasn't that well, I used to ring him on a regular basis. And I have to say, it was a wonderful politician, wonderful Taoiseach, wonderful statesman, wonderful family man, tremendous Fine Gael man, and he understood how politics worked. And I'll just tell two quick stories. I'll tell one about you in a minute, Brendan, and I'm going to tell one about John Ferry. That time when we'd be having elections, you'd have a big night with all the candidates to launch the candidates. But there was a problem in meat. John Bruton was the leader, Damien English, John Farley, they couldn't agree to anybody to launch the campaign for them. And I was given the job. And the next thing, I got a phone call from John Farley. Make sure now he says you give me a good mention tonight. I got a phone call from Damien English. Make sure you give me a good mention tonight. And by that evening, I got a phone call from the leader of Fine Gael. Make sure you give me a good mention tonight when you're at the... So all politics is local. And the other story I'm going to tell, and I'll finish on this. When I came into this hall in 1994, there was, it was the Rainbow Coalition. And Brendan Howland remembers more about water. Uh, we had many a battle about the water. Two things happened. The government abolished the, the property tax and they abolished uh, the water charges. But they forgot about the group water schemes. And we won't go into that now. But we had a big problem in Westport. And for 20 years, and I don't mind saying this, some of the Fianna Fáilers are here. For 20 years, Fianna Fáil were in government and never did anything about it. And all of a sudden, I got elected by election, and it was the biggest single issue that was in Mayo at the time. And I went down to government buildings, and I rang right over, and he said, the Taoiseach is going to Paris tonight to a European meeting. I said, I don't care where he's going. If he doesn't see me tonight, I won't be voting Wednesday night. And that time we had only a majority of one or two. And fair play, I got a phone call back. He'll see you for 10 minutes at 10 past five. And I went in anyway, and he started to show me around government buildings, and I... I won't tell you what I said to him. I'm going to put that in the book as well, John, <laughs> because it, I wouldn't like to put it in the doll. But in all fairness, he took up the phone and he rang my colleague, Minister Howland, Minister for the Environment at the time, and he said, John, Michael Ring is here with me. He has a problem, and I want you to try and resolve that problem. And within two weeks, between the Taoiseach and Brendan Howland, Brendan Howland got me coming up here on a vote on a Wednesday night, and I'll tell you the full story on that one. And he said, I have a good letter here for you. He said, we have signed off five and a half million. He said, but we have no money. But by the end of the year, they were looking for me all county council to spend it. But then he said, I'm going to give it to my two colleagues, Jim Higgins and Indy Kinney in the morning. And I said, you will not. They did nothing about it over the last 20 years. And I said, the one that will be announcing it is me. And I did. And John Bruton fixed that for me. And we were great friends. And as I say, two weeks ago, I spoke to him Saturday two weeks. And I got a beautiful card at Christmas from him, and I wrote from myself, and I was really upset this week, and he was a gentleman. He was a great politician, but you know, he understood what politics was about. He was a grassroots politician, he was a European politician, he was a world politician, but he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot the constituency of Meath, because he knew that's what elected him. And even when he was Taoiseach, he used to hold clinics. I know some of you crown now on clinics, but they have kept us alive in 2002. In the bad days, that's what kept us alive. 
the ones who got elected and the ones who didn't get elected didn't do the clinics and that was their business. But all I want to say today to the Bruton family, Richard, you're so lucky to have a wonderful brother, but then he was so lucky to have you. Because I have to say this, and the Taoiseach alluded to this, two powerful politicians out of the one family. Uh, the Brutons were always decent, they were always nice, and they stood for what I stood for in Fine Gael. They believed in what the, that the people that elected you, that you had to stand by them. And to Fanula and the family today, it's a sad day. It's a sad day for the Brutons. It's a sad day for, for, for Mayo, it's a sad day for the country. And all I want to say, I was honoured that when my, by winning the by-election in 1994, with Eric Burden of the Democratic left, we were able to formulate the government. And sometimes Fine Gael write that out of the history, but it's there. But for I and Eric Burden, Fine Gael, the Democratic left and Labour would not have been able to go into government. And it was the first time in the foundation of the state that we didn't have a general election when the government fell. And I was glad to be part of that government and we delivered a lot to the country and to, particularly to from where I come from, Mayo, and today to the Bruton family and to Ireland. We have lost a great man, a great leader and a great politician. That's Michael Ring. Mary has been on the phone uh, making her own tribute uh, to John Bruton and she says while he may not have done everything right when he was in politics, no one can fault or deny his commitment to the country and its citizens. His work on the peace process was never-ending and he will be remembered in history for his efforts. We have lost a huge political figurehead and it's entirely befitting that he is to be given a state funeral. Thanks, Mary. Uh, Jim in touch with us about the availability of alcohol, saying he doesn't believe that limiting access to alcohol or putting up the price will make a huge difference when it comes to changing people's consumption levels. If someone wants to drink, they'll find a way of accessing it regardless of the price. Margaret in touch with us as well. She says, how dare these thugs burn down someone's property just because they think it's going to be used for asylum seekers and refugees? Will they keep going until they kill someone who happens to be in one of these properties when they set them on fire? People in these areas should be more afraid of the arsonists than anyone else. Patriots, they are not. They are scumbags of the highest order and of course they have their faces covered. If they were true patriots they wouldn't be afraid to show their faces but cowards won't do that. They're using the internet to do their bidding by spreading lies and hatred. What is wrong with the people who believe all they read on the internet? Can they not think for themselves? Obviously not when they go by the drivel that's put up on it. The net is dangerous in the wrong hands and these fires are proof of that. People need to cop on to the lies that's being told by these arsonists. Thank you Margaret for your comment. That's the final word. Maggie McGuire Research. Paul McKenna was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie